strange event happened to one of my childhood best buddies earlier this summer. I have a group of six of us who have remained friends throughout our lifetime. Four of us went to preschool together, and we, we kind of keep a text thread going and talk with sports and politics, that sort of thing. And one of the guys that's in our group uh, in our hometown lives out in the country a bit. He takes his dog for a walk every evening, just the way many of us do, and he puts the dog on the leash and goes out, and it's been a habit for him forever and ever, a pretty common thing. But on this one evening in June, he took his first step out of the door with his dog. He did not have shoes on, and he steps on a copperhead snake, which immediately turned around and bit him, and he sent on the text thread pictures of his foot from the hospital. You need to know, my friend is fine and he has recovered well, but you need to know, I have had nightmares that snakes are coming after me time after time after time. For a couple of weeks, every time I walked out the front door, whether we had a dog with us or not, I just assumed there was going to be a den of snakes waiting on me. In my mind, the only thing worse than snakes are heights. There's nothing more scary than high places unless you're in a high place with snakes chasing you. That would be the worst. But it's pretty clear I've got an irrational fear of snakes. They really don't chase me. When I go for a run in my neighborhood just across the street, I really have never seen one. But the fact is there are plenty of things in our life in which we really can be afraid that are not irrational, that are not funny, that really are things in which we find to be dangerous. And it's amazing all that scripture has to say about fear, about not being afraid, and about our confidence in the Lord against those fears. Some even claim that the English translation of the Bible states, do not be afraid 365 times, as if it's there for one day of the year. I don't know if that's actually true in the translation, but it's proof that it's there a lot. Our lives, even as believers, are surrounded with real things that can produce fear in our life. It is a fact. And our passage this morning addresses this topic and leads us to see how we are to handle those very real fears in our lives. Not snakes and heights, but real issues of life and death and future. So, if you keep your Bibles open to Psalm 27, I'll be referring to this throughout the sermon. This is a beloved passage by King David. And it is meant to bring comfort to us as followers of Christ. Particularly, it is a poem which highlights how God protects his people. And we're going to see this morning that he provides protection against our fears in a very unusual way. And it involves what we are doing at this very moment. So, here is my proposition for us this morning. And there's a bit of a twist. Proposition is this. As you fall more in love with the Lord by worshiping him at church, you will experience more confidence in him outside of the church. As we fall more in love with the Lord as we're worshiping him here, our lives are going to be transformed outside of here in our day-to-day lives. So how did this take place? Two parts I want to highlight here from David's life from Psalm 27. So two things. First, admit the reality of perpetual fears in your life, perpetual fears. And then secondly, embrace the gift of worship for your life. 
the gift of worship for your life. Uh, This is not a hard psalm to understand. It's really not. It's pretty easy to understand. It's not so easy to accept its clear teaching. So first, though, let's, let's accept the reality of our fears. Point one, admit the perpetual fears in your life. The first thing that we do to grow in confidence of what the Lord is doing in our life is to be very honest about all that's taking place in and around us. Look back at verses 1 through 3. By fear, I'm referring to here that which creates emotions inside of us that is marked by real severe anxiety over the perceived outcome of something that we can't control. There are limitless possibilities of what can produce fear. And as we will see, we must be honest about those. I want us to see in David's life how very real and honest he was about the situation he found himself. Again, notice in verse 1, we see that David is stating facts about the Lord and his belief in the Lord. Note, he is not praying here, not at this point, Rather, he's just giving his heart a brief devotional. It's preaching to himself, if you will. He's reminding himself of what he knows to be true, and that is ultimately his life is in the strong hands of the Lord. That ultimately God's will brings light into a situation in which there is darkness. In verse 2, we see a little more of the particulars about the situation going on with David. David admits there is evil around him, and he's hated by other people. Yet, ultimately, his heart is still confident. He knows God is the Lord. But notice, as we'll see over and over again in this passage, and accept this, and it's true in your life as well. David has at least two emotions going on in his heart and his mind at the exact same time. He is hopeful in the Lord, but he's also concerned about the situation around him. They're both true at the same time. Now notice in verse 3, we get a little bit more of the context of the situation David finds himself. Though we don't know exactly which battle David was alluding to here, it's clear that he wrote these words as he remembered a day in which a battle was taking place, including the invasion of an army that was threatening him and his kingdom. Quote, though an army encamps against me, was not a hypothetical scenario. This was not an irrational fear. This wasn't snakes and it wasn't heights. There was an army coming against him. It was a real event. There was an actual army there. David was a man of faith and our same heavenly father, and he had both confidence in God and an army was attacking him. There were multiple things going on at the same time. He was keenly aware of his situation. There was an enemy seeking to destroy him, and he did not know how the Lord would ultimately provide. And he had to deal with the reality that his heart faced fears. So before we go any further this morning, I want us to pause in the midst of this sermon and simply ask this question. In the privacy of your heart this morning, what do you fear today? Truly, what is in your heart that exist in the future, you don't know how the Lord will bring it about. What is it that produces fear? What is it in your life that produces trouble for your soul? That even though you ultimately may believe that the Lord is going to work this out, there's still real issues there. Again, possibilities are limitless. At the start of a new school year, there's all kind of things that could take place. Maybe there's a new job or a transition of a job or looking for a job. 
Perhaps you're considering retirement and you're unsure if you're really ready for that. Maybe you've had a health scare. Maybe the outcome of your adult children. Again, the list is limitless and real fear can exist. But my question for you this morning is, can you name it? Will you be honest in your heart and state, this is my fear? Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe in the Lord. And yes, I'm scared of this. And recognize, along with David, that honesty about the difficult things in your life is not a contradiction to confidence in the Lord. David did not pretend that there wasn't an army outside his window. He admitted it. You see, what will happen in your heart when you name your fears is that it will bring you into alignment where you can experience God bringing his light into that situation. So be courageous this morning and name your fears. Now, I think the danger for us this morning is typically one of two things. On one hand, you think because you're a Christian, you shouldn't be afraid of anything. So you'll take matters into your own hands to figure it all out. And when that happens, it will produce pride in your heart. And you will not have confidence in the Lord. You'll have confidence in yourself. But on the other hand, we tend to wallow in our fears. And we don't let God's light shine into our circumstances And then we fail to experience his supernatural power and we don't get the confidence from him that we should have. Notice David was neither prideful nor crippled because he did not deny the very obvious problem in front of him. He named it while also knowing the solution ultimately would be the Lord's will and his outworking of it. So friends, what is the army you fear today? Now, back to the passage. And notice a problem. We have seen verses 1 through 3. If you read it there, verses 4 and 5 are the obvious solution to the problem. But there's a twist. Why doesn't the psalm end right there? What's up with verses 7 through 14 where David is clearly scared all over again? It seems like that should not be the case. Every commentator I studied this week with this passage said that historians have always tried to lump this together. But ultimately, there were two different parts, one of confidence, one of fear. And the commentators thought that over the years that they just tried for the efficiency of Bible translations to lump it together. However, every biblical theologian recognized that's not the case. What's actually the case is that the emotions that existed in the Psalms come and go just like they do in our lives. See, we want to believe verses 7 through 14 don't match the heart of someone who is confident in the Lord. But they do. Here's what I mean. In verses 1 through 6, David named his fear. He preached the truth to himself. He vowed to trust God's power. That should be the end of the song. Checkmate. Game over. It should be over. But guess what? David's life continued. Life goes on and new enemies emerge at the gate. The second half of the psalm reveals the reality that there are daily battles in our heart against fears. What happens is essentially this. The trust and confidence that we experienced yesterday might get tested again today. And we'll experience him and his faithfulness, and it'll be tested again tomorrow. It's perpetual. That's what a life of faith in Christ is. 
this confident faith David possessed at the beginning of the psalm now finds itself pleading with the Lord for help again, even to the point of recognizing his mother and father had forsaken him. You see, overcoming one fear doesn't mean that you have no more fears. It means overcoming one fear produces faith that you know that God is at work in the future. As I studied and prayed about this passage this week, there is an Old Testament account that came to my mind that I think fits this passage so perfectly. It comes from 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. It's the story of Elijah. Many of you know the story. If you don't know it, I encourage you to go back and look at it this week. Elijah was the greatest prophet to his people. His task was to declare God's truth against the false prophets of Baal who many in Israel had listened to and put their trust. Elijah came up with a plan to prove that his God, his God alone was the true God. So there was a process by which Elijah had a competition where the false gods would call on their God to produce a fire that would burn the incense at the altar and compare that to Elijah when he called upon Yahweh to see what would happen. When you read this account, it's kind of humorous. The purpose was to prove which of the two, the false prophet or the real prophet, could produce fire for the altar. So the false prophets called and called and called to their gods for help. Even Elijah taunted them, telling them to call out louder and louder. But no help came, no fire was produced. Then Elijah came, called on the name of Yahweh. And fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering. It was glorious. It's what movies are made of. It's one of those things we wish we could have been there to see it. And everyone saw that Elijah had the power to do things because of his relationship with the true God. A miracle happened right in front of everyone's eyes. A supernatural deliverance. Enemies fled. Elijah was the man. One of the great Bible stories. You would think Elijah would be the most confident person in the history of the Bible. But that's not what happened. The very next scene in his life, 1 Kings 19. Elijah's enemy, King Ahab, had heard about this account. And he sent a message saying to him that he was going to kill Elijah because he was angry. That is, he offered a threat. And you would think Elijah was so full of confidence in the Lord's power after what he had just witnessed, he would have laughed at Ahab. That's not what happened at all. The man who experienced supernatural power one day, Scripture says, was afraid and ran for his life on another day. Friends, is this not often our reality Are you disappointed in yourself that even though God was faithful to you yesterday, you're afraid of tomorrow? It can happen to us. Be encouraged. You're not alone. Even King David and the great Elijah were humans just like us. We have to accept that our fears are perpetual. That's what being a frail human is in a fallen world, even though we know our hope is in the Lord. So it begs the question, how are we to live in such a way, in such a place where our confidence grows, where our confidence continues? If our fears continue, then how does our confidence grow? So how do we mature? 
part two. Notice the answer to the question. Embrace the gift of worship for your life. Notice the perpetual answer to our fears. Look back at verses four and five. Let me read verse four again because it is so beautiful. I said, this is not hard to understand. You just have to accept it. Verse four. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Notice what David did not ask. He did not ask that his enemy be removed. He asked that his heart would be renewed in the presence of God. Remember David's context here. He was at war, which meant he was physically removed from the place where he would have gone Sabbath after Sabbath to worship. At that time, that would have been a tabernacle, and David could not get there because he was at a war. Thus, Sabbath after Sabbath, as he was away, he longed to be in the presence of God. Because in the presence of God, that is where he would find his hope as he faced his enemies. And he asked for one thing, and one thing only, is that he would dwell in the house of the Lord. And in the dwelling inside of this house is the place where he would find God's beauty. And when he experienced that beauty, he would be transformed on the outside. The question, what would bring about comfort to the one facing a great fear? The answer It would be to experience the presence of God and worship him in his beauty and to inquire of him. But did you catch this? The dominant aspect of this psalm is the place. It's found inside the place where God is to be worshipped. In other places in scripture, we will see the significance of the people of God. We'll see the significance of nature. We'll see the significance of other aspects. But here, David is dealing with the place. There is a mystery here that I cannot fully explain or understand. But yet, Scripture is clear. The place where we meet with God is unique and it is transformative to us in a way in which nothing else is. Again, David did not ask for his enemy to be taken away. He asked to be in the place where he could worship God. That's what he wanted because that's what his heart needed. Now, what is the connection of David's fear of an army and his longing to gaze at God's beauty? The connection is this. What takes place inside the house of worship impacts our life directly outside the place of worship. Now, without doing a whole deep dive into a theological lesson of covenant theology, except this, Jesus set in motion that he is worshipped in individual churches all over the world. Don't miss how simple and profound this is. When the writer of Hebrews warned not to give up the practice of meeting together He knew that there was something that happens at church which cannot be duplicated outside of the church. When we gather here, just as folks are doing throughout Lexington this morning, throughout the world, though we gather imperfectly, 
the acts of our worship are God's way in which he reveals his beauty and his presence to us. These forms of worship that we have been engaging in all morning are more transformative than you recognize. All the stuff that we do, our singing, our giving, our prayers, our confession, our repentance, our taking of vows, our hearing of sermons, our baptizing, our taking communion, our looking at the cross above us. What do all of these things do? They point us to Christ. And they reveal God's beauty in him. And that changes us as we worship him. Richard Sibbs, a great Puritan writer, says this. Particular churches with particular pastors are God's tabernacle to the world. We have gathered to encounter him this morning. This is where he meets us. So it's no small thing what we're doing here. Your heart, your mind, your soul, they need to experience the beauty of God more than they need anything else. So coming to church this morning, as simple as this seems, is not a simple thing. We feel like we just get up and come, but the reality is this is where God has designed for him to meet with us. You see, our confidence in the Lord in the midst of perpetual fears is renewed here, is fueled here, is produced here, is awakened here as you come to church and meet with Jesus. You know, over the past couple of years with, with all things COVID and encouraging folks to stay at home, of course that's come with a lot of different complicated issues. But something I've noticed time after time particularly with our older folks who have been away for a while and just didn't feel like it was time to come, when they finally did come back, they always said the same thing. They always say, it's so good to be here. And I've often wondered, what do they mean by that? Do they mean they just want to see each other? or what, What's going on inside of that statement? And what I think they mean, even though they may not realize it, is that they have encountered God in a way that's not possible apart from gathering in the place of worship. So let me ask you this morning. Why did you really come today? There are a lot of other things you could have been doing this morning. So whether it was by habit, or whether your parents made you come, or maybe you're visiting and you're not sure why you're here, Please see this morning that these simple things that churches do, God reveals himself in supernatural ways. When you come because you're desperate for the presence of the Lord, the Lord will shine light upon your fears and you will see him through your fears. If that's what your desire is this morning, I promise you, God will meet with you. Come to church with an open heart. Come to church with a desperate soul. Come to church asking the Lord to show you himself. You see, this transformation takes place in our life because not just that we worship, but the one to whom we give our worship. The object of our worship this morning is our king. The object of our worship is Jesus, the one we praise, the one who came for us, the one who will return to us. He is the object. 
And we remember him in our praise, even in the midst of our fears and the reality that they are petrol, because our hope is in the one who experienced fear that we can never even imagine. Jesus is the one who called on the Lord to hide him in the shelter of his protection, and his father said no. When Jesus was nearing the cross and pleading with his father, if there was another way, those sweat became like drops of blood as he prayed for strength. God the father did not shelter his son, but unleashed unimaginable wrath upon the body of Christ. And Jesus' greatest fears were realized. In his torture, he was removed from his father's love. We praise him this morning because he has the power truly to comfort us in the way in which no one or nothing else can. His sacrifice was for us so that we do not fear what our sins deserve. We celebrate this morning our deepest fears will not happen. Our sins are gone. This is the beauty that leads to our confidence and conquers our fears. That is what we do here with each other, with these forms. When we gather to worship, Jesus is exalted and he changes us. Amen? Amen. I intend to get up early tomorrow morning and go for a run. I doubt I will step on a den of snakes. But who knows? It's possible. Either way, our life is fueled under the protection of our king. So let's continue to worship him as we come to his table now. Let's pray. Oh, Father, yes, our fears are many, but they are not your fears. You have conquered death. You have conquered the grave. You have conquered our anxieties. You have conquered all that we don't know to be true. You are the sovereign king. You exist throughout the ages. You know our future. So, oh Lord, would you remind us again of Christ. Remind us again of his sacrifice. Come, meet with us, we pray, at this table. In Christ's name, amen.